Hey, welcome to Win the Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. Welcome in to another episode of the pod. A couple of things I'm going to say just on the front of this one, which is firstly, I've been trying to record this intro for a little while, uh, but my voice has not been, not been great. And so it's been, uh, I nearly lost it last week. It's been cracking and doing all sorts of interesting things. And now it is capable of doing things much lower and deeper than normal, which means I'm almost ready to be a mega church pastor. But not yet. Do not fear. Uh, <laughs> Uh, anyway, I think it's back enough for me to be able to record this and hopefully for it not to sound too irritating. Some of you might even prefer the deep voice. I don't know. It has its benefits, perhaps. Anyway, uh, that's the first thing to say. The second thing is just to say that this is a first for In The Shift, which is that this episode is actually a reissue of a conversation that we released early last year, or maybe about April, March or April last year. And... Uh, in the Shift, you know, as a podcast that started late 2018, it came very much out of my own experience of having, you know, really inherited and, and especially as a younger man being immersed within particular forms of Christian faith and Christian community that I found over time, whilst initially a super enthusiastic about, over time to have a number of kind of challenges emerge within it. And, I, and one of those challenges, just in a very simple sense, was just that there was not a lot of room to explore, to ask questions, to doubt, to process um, whether or not the things we were believing were even things we should be believing. <laughs> and so I wanted to open up the space through the podcast for conversations about theology, about power, or about belief, about belonging, about community. And um, we've explored all sorts of stuff, heaven and hell and sexuality and embodiment and, and um, violence and scripture and disability and uh, all sorts of territory we've covered as a way to try and just open up room for conversations that often people haven't been able to have. Um, unfortunately, within uh, maybe the church spaces they've come from. So uh, sometimes we talk about the language of deconstruction. Uh, sometimes it's kind of a theological renovation, uh, pulling apart. And then for some people, there's a putting back together again of something new. And for others, it's it's a moving beyond to something else. You know, So uh, wanted to help open up a space for that. And then early last year, a number of stories started coming out that related in particular to megachurch um Abuse of power, really, of coercion, of manipulation, of people experiencing burnout and trauma and ongoing mental health issues and all sorts of stuff related to their time immersed within particular forms of Pentecostal megachurches, New Zealand, Australia, and you know, and around the world. And so uh, my good friend Shane Meyer-Holt and I began talking about that on the podcast. We both had history in those kinds of spaces. We both had experiences within them. And we thought, well, look, we're who, I guess, if anyone's going to talk about this stuff, perhaps it should be us, you know. And so we started talking about it, you know, relatively directly or very directly on the pod um, last year. And what we found, and perhaps what we didn't expect was that we might be some of the only people, in at least in this part of the world, who were dealing so directly with some of these conversations, especially in New Zealand, which is where I'm from. Shane is based in Australia and Melbourne, although he's originally from New Zealand. And, and so we started having these convos and... And the kind of floodgates opened in a sense, you know, suddenly started hearing from hundreds, if not thousands of people with their stories, with their experiences uh, within those kinds of churches. And, and it must be said, not even just, you know, big mega churches, although there are some specific um, challenges within those kinds of spaces, uh, but within all sorts of kind of Pentecostal, evangelical, charismatic churches that people were wrestling with and struggling with, and, and particularly that related to abuse of power, that particularly related to kind of religious trauma to coercion, um, 
to manipulation. So we began talking about it. We began, you know, and and what started out as let's have a couple of conversations about this turned into a, a really long running conversation. Now, recently again, this this conversation has come up. Um, partly through, again, the work of journalists and others outside of the church, uh, and also some contributions from those more as insiders. Uh, recently, there's been a documentary aired in Australia called The Kingdom, which was put together by Mark Fennell, uh, a really insightful, nuanced look at the kind of rise and fall of the Hillsong megachurch empire and the kinds of churches and communities that are trying to fill that space and, and whether or not any of the lessons have been learned and and kind of looking beyond the attention-grabbing headlines of of maybe it's about money or it's a bunch of grifters or or it's all silly god fairies in the sky kind of stuff and, and sort of getting to some of the more subtlety of, of what happens. Why are these spaces so attractive? Uh, and also, why can they be so problematic? Uh, why can they mean so much to so many and yet also cause such havoc? And that's kind of the territory we've been exploring on in The Shift as well, trying to have that nuanced conversation to get beneath the surface of things. So we thought we'd bring you this first conversation again that we began with uh, early last year so that if you're new to In The Shift, uh, you can kind of start here and then if you think, yes, that's a conversation I need to have, then you can wind your way back to uh, the series of conversations that followed this first one. And so this first conversation we called the Mega, Mega Church Playbook Part 1 uh, and that in the podcast, although this is episode number 80, that was actually episode number 55, which seems like quite some time ago now, and uh, and it's the beginning of Shane and I. And what we were doing in this conversation was just processing really in real time a bunch of stories that were coming out. Uh, there was a journalist in New Zealand, David Farrier, who was releasing a bunch of stories about uh, megachurch in New Zealand and some of the, some of the experiences of, of harm that were coming out of that space. And so we were just kind of processing, I think in many respects, um, kind of this weird scenario, almost surreal, where all of these things we had been talking about uh, in kind of small ways uh, as friends for f- many years uh, and also with other people that we knew that had and that had experienced harm in these spaces and also people I'd heard from through the podcast to that point. Uh, but suddenly all of that had kind of hit the mainstream news, you know. And again, uh, this year, even, even in Australia, seeing that stuff again hit the kind of mainstream conversation in what I think is really important and necessary ways because there's a bunch of stuff within these church spaces that has become normalized practice, normalized belief, normalized leadership, normalized models and structures and systems that are in fact propagating significant harm and that need to be pulled apart, dissected, investigated, interrogated, and to say, what's going on here? Why is this kind of so potent for people? And are there some healthier ways forward um, and so that's really what this conversation is. It's the beginning of it. And uh, if if you find that this conversation is something that you haven't bumped into yet, then hopefully it's helpful to you. And if you think that might be helpful, then you can then go back to episode 55, 56 and pick up the conversation from there and follow your way through. So that's kind of what, why did we decided to bring a reissue of this one. Um, look, these things are uh, uncomfortable in many respects to talk about so directly. Uh, certainly for Shane and I, we're both people who are still involved in churches, although 
radically different from the kind of churches we came from in the past. And also for both of us, you know, it's it's more than a decade since we were in those kind of church spaces. So um, there's a sense of kind of putting our head back in the vortex and going, oh, that's right. That's what that was like. Uh, and and also, you know, there's, there's kind of a, in some sense, a breaking of taboo and talking about this stuff so directly because it's not really the done thing. And, um, and so, you know, I think we're aware of that and, and of the tension of that, but at the same time, harm and systems that continue to amplify and propagate harm within the church of all places needs to be spoken about, called out, uh, and we need to see change. So that's what this is. So there's nothing more to say other than you can get in contact if you want to share a story or an experience or a thought or ask a question uh, via email, feedback at intheshift.com. And if you'd like to join uh, our Patreon community to just help support the work of the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash in the shift. Uh, there's also an online Discord community uh, if you're a patron uh, where you can share some online space with other people who've had maybe some similar experiences to you. Um, and there's a beautiful little conversation that happens in that space. So this is episode 80 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. Uh, so I was thinking about when we met, which would have been... You shouldn't have. I, yep, no. I saw you across the room. <laughs> you were you were looking beautiful. Um, I think I was actually sitting at the back of a classroom and you thought I was being very irreverent. Well, that's true. We were both studying, although I was studying. It must be said at a higher level than you. <laughs> and... <laughs> Uh, but we were, we were, um, yes, we, I think we met in the classroom, but I don't think we became friends really there yet. No. We first met there. That would have been what, 2008, 2009? I have no timeline in my life. So around 2008, 2009, sometime around there. Um, 2008, I got married and you definitely weren't invited. So, I was, I, and I'm still upset about that. We weren't. I may not have known you at the time, but as <laughs> a very dear friends now, I'm <laughs> that I wasn't there. Um, so let's, uh, you know, thinking about this, this, when our lives kind of intersected and, and we kept bumping into each other sort of on a few occasions and then ended up having some conversations and we were like, oh, here's a person who understands me. Let's call it a crossroads. (laughs) (laughs) Um, what do you remember kind of of that time and, and the time when we were, when we were sort of, when we found each other, Shane? We found each other. Yeah, well, it was, it was interesting because um, we, my church really wanted to be your church. Right. And my church had been through a few renditions from a kind of community Pentecostal church, very community-focused, into a very, very intense revival-focused church. Uh, and that didn't really uh, bear the desired fruits. And so we wanted to become, you know, an excellence kind of aspiring megachurch church in a much smaller city than yours. And and, and so I knew of you because I, of course, had seen you tinkling the ivories at many a conference. Uh, I, could play, I could play a minor chord behind an offering talk or, or behind you, a salvation altar call. Ever, really got yeah, the people going. You, you, you really drew the money out of my wallet with your... Uh, <laughs> with your 
E minor. Uh, I don't know what that is. So. That was excellent musical knowledge. Thank you. Good. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so, and so we, it's always interesting when you have kind of internal questions uh, about the thing that you are participating in because you meet other people and you play a little bit of a game trying to find out where they're at with, uh, with their church and, and, and their relationship to it. And I think pretty quickly we both worked out that while we were both heavily invested in the thing that we had given so much of our lives to, uh, we had some big questions about that. And we were probably both a little bit down that journey by that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but it was, I just remember feeling uh, incredibly <laughs> excited and comfortable um, talking to you and having the sense that, oh, finally someone else who might actually get it. And mm. that was, yeah, that was a, a huge relief. Yeah. And it turns out that we actually found a bunch of us in a, in a similar place from different contexts um, who all kind of wanted to chat through some of this stuff together. But but when you, I, I had a, an, another friend in a similar place in the same organisation. And uh, so I was kind of lucky in that sense. But it, it's really easy to think that you're the crazy one. Uh, that you're the one, you're the only person in this whole place that is asking these questions mm. and sort of find other kind of kindred spirits is quite nice. Yes. Well, I remember, yeah, the same the same feeling. You kind of like, I think we used to sort of joke with each other, like the, the, just the feeling of am I, am, I, am I going mad? Like am I, <laughs> yeah. am I going insane here? Because yeah. I'm... And possibly so is the and, answer to that. Yeah. That's right, and it's not like no, of course not. It's like possibly, yeah. Um, possibly, I'm totally losing my mind, or I'm totally losing my way, or or. Mm. or and, and, and you're arguing with yourself as part of the problem because I think it's perhaps important context to say we both we both loved at various stages the places that we were in the mm. churches were, and we're mm. heavily invested mm. in them. I actually came. I come from kind of brethren and Baptist stock. Uh, I came into Pentecostalism very suspicious and sceptical um, because of the background that I had and didn't want to get caught up in the hype and didn't want to, you know, like get carried away and wanted to think a little bit more on all those things. And I remember kind of going to, you know, see, um, going to conferences and things like that and saying, you know, like, oh, you know, this is not for me and it's all it's all just hype. But then in the process, actually really falling in love with some of that excitement and, and really falling in love with some of the things that I saw happening. I became a youth pastor in that context and went through the experience of having a youth group that was teeny tiny and insignificant and, you know, all of those things. And then it becoming bigger and exciting and being involved in um, leading leading that thing. And I, like part of when you're asking those questions, part of the, the problem is you're arguing with yourself mm. because you're so heavily invested in it. And you love this thing so much, even if you begin to have big questions about it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you, um, you've given your, in many respects, like your life to it. And uh, most of your, well, this was certainly the case for me. So I had grown up in a kind of more small community town, you know, Pentecostalism, and then come to Auckland and then, now I was in this big, huge, exciting thing that was like almost overwhelmingly exciting when I first started going. I was like, oh my, you know, because I, as a, as a kind of a younger, small town Pentecostal kid, I'd sort of dreamed of, of, of the days when church would be this, 
amazing thing. I mean, even just when you're getting beaten up at school, just just having a church that you're not embarrassed by. Yeah. And I, I yeah. can think about the churches that I was in, and I certainly wouldn't be embarrassed by them now. But at the time, like, because of the social credit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, even, even having a church that, you know, that, that might give you something in terms of mm. social credit rather than taking it away. Yes. That's very exciting. <laughs> yes. Uh... Not that we both weren't really cool. Obviously. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's interesting even to think about like being cool because I think like I came through school um, as relatively uncool. Um, by the sort of end of school, things had evened out a little bit. Yes. I know, hard to believe, isn't it? Um, but uh, but I, you know, came to and, – and by the end of school was kind of – I was very insecure um, – Kind of the end of school was a bit better than the beginning of it, but came into this church environment where I slowly became somebody, mm. and to be in this environment where I was, I was somebody is is, mm. is very in in the mix with things that you care about, yeah, and then building relationships with people that you come to love. Mm. Um, there's a lot about it that you love, yeah, and, and, and they're also entangled. So even yeah. with that, I also had a really rough time at school, and I remember. Youth group being the one safe place for me. Like it was the place where I was mm. affirmed and kind things were spoken mm. to me. All this beautiful, amazing stuff going on in there that's really good and ego and power and all of those things as well. And so it's never that clean cut. Like it's interesting watching the commentary around the stuff that's coming out at the moment and there's such a polarisation in terms of people's perspectives on it and some people can't see how you couldn't see through it in the first place. But for mm-hmm. lots of us, we couldn't see through it for quite some time because the initial experiences were so rich and so deep and so good and found founded on some really beautiful and kind things. Yeah, and I guess that, you know, what you end up with is people having very, very different experiences of the same place. Yeah. Um, and And sometimes... I mean, that happens in all sorts of different directions. Sometimes when you're on the outside initially, it's amazing. Like mm. as in you've come into this thing mm. and you kind of, you work your way towards the center if you like and things kind of can feel more and more amazing as you work your way towards the center. Um, and depending on how the journey towards the center goes, probably <laughs> maybe depends on what your experience of it is. If you become one of the preferred ones or one of the ones who succeeds or one of the ones who's doing really well, then that experience can be, Positive all the way through. It can feel that way. Yeah. Um, but if you're one of the one who's, as they go through to the center, um, you're not quite up to it in this way. Or, whoopsie, you thought the wrong thing about that. Or you said the wrong thing there. Or you you asked that question when you really shouldn't have. Uh, then that journey or, towards. Or even just that you don't have the kinds of things to offer. Yeah. That are, yeah. That are valued in that context. No. So what kinds of things did you did you need to have to offer? Um, I mean, I think certainly, uh, like, <laughs> I mean, like all the classic quote unquote leadership things, right? Like <laughs> charisma and passion and, you know, being white, <laughs> <laughs> being, being white and straight and male preferably, uh, all, all of, all of, all of that kind of stuff, being, um, boundless amounts of energy, being able-bodied, mm. uh, all of, all of those kinds of things, being uh, articulate, having the capacity to uh, think enough to um, be able to say things that sound profound but not think too much. <laughs> you actually ask questions about what they mean. 
uh, <laughs> a, a combo of those kinds kinds of things, and then just boundless loyalty and enthusiasm. One of yeah. the things I worked out in this journey is that I'm a I'm a fiercely loyal person, um, and that has that can be an excellent trait, and that can be a really really dangerous one because mm. I'm also quite a cynic too. But after my loyalty trumped my cynicism, mm. and that certainly helped me maintain a place within the power structure. Yeah, and so so how, if you think about your own experience back then, kind of around the time that we were meeting and so on, how, if you were to think about like how long a process was it from, like can you think about it in those terms, like how, how long yeah, it took can, you to, yeah, to go from yeah. more serious, because I remember, I remember when I was quite young, having, sometimes having questions come to the surface and then sort of burying them down, but they weren't, they never lingered for too long because I didn't, either didn't allow them to or I had another excellent altar call and someone prayed for me and I felt much better about my life. Um, but later on, the question started emerging in a way that that were perhaps more serious. Do you, do you have a sense of how long you sat in that place where you're like actually quite uncomfortable with some of what's happening but also still staying loyal and, and sticking yeah. it out? I think it's more that I vacillated in and out. And mm. so I, I, I started, um, there were things I was uncomfortable with, as I said, when I came into that context and then they became familiar and I kind of gained a sense of identity and a sense of place and then a sense of power. And then there would be things that made me uncomfortable again and I would struggle with that and then I would see good things happen. And so I'd go, well, you know, these beautiful and amazing things are happening and is it that bad or um, can we change it from the inside? And that was a lot of what I think I ended up trying to do is going, I don't like this, but it doesn't have to be this way. Can't we have can't we have both and can't we change it from the inside? And then you don't always realise how much you uh, are actually adapting to it rather than seeing it change. Mm. And, and again, so much of it isn't that black and white. So we, again, our youth group kind of, I, I looked after a bunch of 11 and 12-year-olds and this thing just over a couple of years just exploded. It just uh, metaphorically, fortunately, in this case. <laughs> but it, um, it, it, it grew and grew, and that was really, really exciting. And it wasn't just exciting, but we were actually, <laughs> we were these like churchy white kids, and then suddenly we got um, a huge influx of people from a different social class than us, much lower socioeconomic. And we really felt like we were, you know, these wonderful white saviors that were really, saving people and, mm. and, and turning their lives around and helping them. And, 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 and to some degree we were. We were able to be a place of stability and profound kindness and love and all of these things. We were woefully ill-equipped for the things that we uh, were uh, trying to address or trying to deal with at the time. But in that process, a lot of the kind of doubts were suppressed because of the importance of what we were doing, the excitement of what we were doing. And so when you thought, oh, am I just doing this for the power? Am I just doing this, this for the excitement? Then you could flip back and go, no, no, no. There are lives being changed and we're reaching people and uh, we couldn't abandon these kids. You know, they they really need us now. And so it's always this mixed bag. And I remember a couple of kind of key, mo key moments. I remember going to my local Christian bookstore and the lady at the counter, uh, <laughs> we were kind of obviously the, growing church in town at the time and the big youth group at town, in town at the time. And I didn't know that she knew me, but I was 
purchased a book, probably a leadership book, because that was all we were really encouraged to lead, uh, to, to read. See, I can't even say read. That's how <laughs> leadership I am. Um, <laughs> yeah, six principles of um, abusing power or something. And and the lady at the, the lady at the counter said, "Here you go, thirteen ninety nine. And she was quiet for a bit, and then she said, "It's not all about numbers, you know." <laughs> <laughs> and I went, uh, no, "No, we know that." And then I went away, and then told someone back at the church office, and they were like, "This, how rude! How dare she?" Because we knew it wasn't about numbers. We were just trying to help as many people as we could. And we were helping people. And I still remember thinking on that afterwards and going, I wonder why she had that, that impulse. We, we all know it's not about numbers. She must just be jealous or something. But then later on, as I reflected on some of our processes, realizing how much this infinite growth machine um, that had to keep on growing, we, we, or at least had to keep that large because we couldn't let people down. We were, we were the ones saving. We were the ones helping. We were the ones doing the significant thing. And then wouldn't it be better if it was just a bit bigger and we could help more people? Yeah. And then you suddenly realize what you are doing to keep that going. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like I'm fortunate enough that I asked these questions early enough and was blessed by a uh, multi-pronged life breakdown, <laughs> 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 theologically physically, relationally, all, all kinds of things all at once, mental health all at once, and my life in my mid-20s came to a grinding halt, all while still trying to be an excellent and thriving youth pastor, mm -hmm. of course. Uh, but it was that rupture. It was that sense of being out of control and actually not of life not getting better and better like it was supposed to that gave me the space to go, wait a minute, this whole, this whole thing might not be good. I, what I'm doing, what I'm encouraging, um, while there are good elements to it, maybe some of these things aren't that good either. Maybe the fact that I'm, you know, out six nights a week <laughs> uh, and then feeling bad for having a night off, uh, maybe maybe my body can't sustain that. Mm. You know, in, in, in my particular culture and my context, which shares a lot with yours, we were told your body was a production machine and an enemy. And so... It was important that you ignored what your body told you um, because it was just there to produce more stuff and to do more things for Jesus. Uh, and fortunately, mine broke down at one point and so did my brain, my poor brain and emotional nervous system. Uh, and not long enough for me to actually reflect on that stuff. Mm. I remember being um, sat down with, with one of my um, superiors uh, <laughs> and... Uh, his eye, and he <laughs> under his eye, yes, indeed. Uh, he um, he was sharing with me the 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 verse, "I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me," mm. and uh, and the, and the surrounding context, of course. Yes, of course. He dove deep into the context of the uh, Philippi and the uh, time when which the Apostle Paul was writing. Um, no, no, he said that means that you don't ever have to say no because the Bible says you can do all things. So mm. what I do in my life is I just say yes to everything all the time. And I just, someone says, here, more work. I say, yep, I can do all things. <laughs> and, He's uh, going straight to the top, Michael. <laughs> he was, well, he was going straight to the top until he, you know, burnt out and imploded himself um, eventually. Mm. But um, yes, <laughs> that kind of mentality of, 
of um, your body as a, a capacity, right? Was a big word. Huge. I think still is. I'm sure in those in those systems. Um, do you have the capacity? It was one of the leadership questions that would sort of get asked of you before you were, you know, made a leader in my context, or not not that it would necessarily be asked of you verbally, but that people would be asking about you before they appointed you to a particular position. Does do they have the capacity? And then if you start to struggle or say, I don't know that I can go out again tonight. This is my tenth meeting for the week and I'm still trying to work at Genesis Research, um, in my job in science. Uh, <laughs> they're like, no, you need to be there. This is just a capacity issue. You just need to grow your capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that was um, like so simple and so effective at just being like, oh, well, I don't want to have a low capacity because that will limit my the possibilities for me in this space that yeah. will mean I can't advance, I can't yeah. maybe do the things that I want to do. or uh, And those things run in stereo, right? Because you go, it's not just about, you don't actually think out loud my advance and my, mm. no, mm-hmm. you say, you know, the good that I can do and your shadow side says, and my advance. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> my capacity yeah. to minister and reach people and love Jesus and serve God. And <laughs> and have a little bit more power. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's why you can end up on a stage in front of people feeling incredibly special about being on that stage and give an amazing talk about humility. Because mm. um, mm. on one level you can, and, and I remember doing that, I remember talking about humility in this context in front of these people. And, and you know, I genuinely believed in what I was talking about. Mm. But my shadow side was like, isn't this kind of awesome? <laughs> <laughs> These people are yeah. loving what I have to say. Um, so, so maybe let's talk about uh, talk about that because I think that this is kind of at the root of it for us in terms of we probably like I remember reaching a point where I went, we are doing more harm than good, mm-hmm. or the good that we are doing cannot justify what we are needing to do to do it. Um, and that sense of like the systemic is never really talked about in mm. these contexts of there's a sense in which the ends justifies the means that growing a great church, changing the nation, shaking the planet, doing whatever it is that you are doing that is great and big and the whole world will wake up and recognise one day what we're doing and how amazing it is. And then one day you leave the place and you go, no one had any idea <laughs> about us. It's just very embarrassing. We're <laughs> <laughs> very important and great things are happening. Uh, it's only really other churches uh, <laughs> that really care. Um, yeah, that sense of that sense of means to an end, that sense of look at, look at all the good we're doing. And so... Um, it's okay, it's okay, isn't it? It's yeah. like okay that that um, and yeah, the 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 lack of ability to say what is what is the structure actually doing to people? So because we could look at people's lives being changed, however we do, and there are all sorts of ways to kind of quantify that and statistics mm. and spreadsheets that were that were calculated to say how many people made decisions for Christ or uh, you know how many people did we convert? That we'll never see, that we'll never see again, <laughs> <laughs> or that we saw last week. Um, <laughs> you know, so there, there were ways of kind of quantifying or this many people came to these conferences or, or, or whatever it was that we were a part of. Um, and so you could kind of look at all the good or this community project that we did. Mm. Uh, and and it sort of didn't matter in many respects 
how he treated people along the way. Yeah. Sort of, it did on a surface level, but yeah. not in real terms. So yeah. like if someone asked you that, does it matter how we treat people along the way? You'd be like, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, but in real terms, you're like, no, you've just got to suffer a bit more because this is for the, for the good of the cause. And, and part of it is who you treat how. Like because mm. obviously the people that you are trying to reach, you treat really, really well. The people that um, uh, have the capacity to fund things, you treat really, really well. It's the insiders, the closer you get to the inside, that you can treat worse and worse or justify mm. uh, the fact that they are, you know, <laughs> cannon fodder of some form, you know, that they they are in it with you and therefore you can kind of treat them like an extension of your own body. Yeah. And if you push yourself harder, you can push them harder. And, and you know, nothing can't, can't be fixed with, you know, a good attitude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your attitude determines your altitude. So I've, I've, heard, I've heard this. Yeah. Yes. Yes, on the ground, if that explains anything about my attitude. And so, yeah, yeah, you find yourself like um, exhausted, worn out with a bunch of questions going, oh, man. And then then you look at someone over there and you think, but look how much they've changed. Or you go into that meeting and you have that experience and the big chorus hits and the hands go to the ceiling and – in my in my case, very short arms, so they didn't reach very high. But uh, you know, <laughs> that and then you have this kind of euphoric moment, or you look around and you're like, "Well, look at this! This is kind of amazing." And so, therefore, don't pay attention to all of those other feelings, all of those other questions. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. I think we've talked before about the idea of um, you know the, the promised land in the Book of Joshua. The idea that you know, um, if you read, if you've dusted off your Bible in the last 30 years. There's a, a book called Joshua in there. And, you know, the Israelites have promised it by God. And so they have to go and, you know, take the land. And there might be a few Canaanites there <laughs> who <laughs> get slaughtered in the process. But, you know, that's just collateral damage for the good things that God is doing. Uh, and if you read, you know, um, Native American or Latin American, um, Indigenous people, or First Nations people, r- reflect on that very passage in that book, um, they feel, as people who have been conquered and colonised, feel differently <laughs> about uh, the subhumanness and legitimization of the violence against those people and, and whether it's worth it for Israel to receive their promised land uh, by, by the sword. And, and that kind of theme really does begin to come through in some of the stuff of, you know, as long as the cause, as long as the cause is big enough and great enough and blessed enough and ordained by God, God told us we're going to take this nation, God told us, we're going to do this thing, then you can kind of deal with a lot of bloodshed along the way. And mm. particularly if you can minimize it, particularly if you can make it, um, we, we've talked, you know, recently about the, the use of the word um, hurt, you know, mm. that there are, there are hurt people. And, you know, sometimes people get hurt in churches and you'll never, you know, I've been hurt in churches and mm. you never go to a church where you don't get hurt and you just have to, you know, sometimes we just need to forgive and, you know, we need to deal with our, Hurt or yeah, because there's yeah. not look. There's no such thing as a perfect church, right? There's so there's, there's no such thing as a perfect yeah. perfect church. You'll always yeah. get hurt when you're in community and relationship That's with people right. at some yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can say the same thing about nations. Mm. Uh, but you know, we hope that some nations aren't committing genocide. Mm. And there's a difference between the ones that aren't and the ones that are. Mm. And, and 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 same with with churches that we use hurt to um, minimize. Mm. The, the concept of hurt to minimise 
what is often damage and harm um, and systemic damage and harm. So it's not like one person just got their toe trod on accidentally um, or that someone under pressure spoke badly to someone. It's that these patterns replicate themselves Mm. uh, and there's an entire system that is not just hurting people's feelings but actually leaving them irreparably damaged and harmed to do really, really good things. It's pushing people's bodies to places um, that they shouldn't go to. It's pushing people's emotional systems to places. It's using coercion and emotional violence and control um, to keep people in a place. It's, it's um, yeah, these, these things that leave lasting impacts on people aren't just hurt and they're not just singular. They're often in these places, they are systemic. And the way, there are, there are ways of not letting these stories come out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, the, the kind of, the get out of jail free kind of phrases that, that mm. I think um, get used, you know, like there's no perfect church or everyone, everyone gets hurt at some point. Um, you know, it can be so effective because the lines in many respects are really blurry at times. Yeah. So when does a volunteer stop willingly volunteering Yes, and get coerced into volunteering. Mm-hmm. Um, when you know, um, when when do these things kind of cross over? But and yet there is a difference, and yes. it's like saying, "Oh, well, look, all all political parties have their problems." But you know, yes. so the Nazis just had a few sort of, you know, <laughs> they just yeah. had some problems. But all political parties have problems. You know, it's like okay, well, no, there's, there's at Not- some point we have to be able to say there's yeah systemic abuse happening within this context or there's 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 problems that are rife and if they are yeah coming coming out in the kind of volume that we're seeing at the moment for example in relation to some of the big churches like the hillsongs the arise the you know and the and the experiences that are coming to the surface and and that if we're honest we could have told you at any stage in the last 10 years that there were hundreds of those stories yeah there right thousands yeah. of those stories yeah um, i, I but, work in a church context yeah. now where a lot of our people have come from places mm. um, from 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 these contexts and I sit weekly with people who share these stories and they're not they're not one-offs what's interesting in sitting to, with people telling them for the first time a is how scared they are mm. uh, the climate of fear about even telling their story as if they are somehow letting someone down or that there might be backlash and retribution, which there is. <laughs> I think at different stages, both of us have uh, had people try to get us fired mm. <laughs> and we've crossed them the wrong way. Indeed. Um, <laughs> is it the same person who's tried to get us both fired? <laughs> <laughs> I believe so. Uh, and so there's, you know, there's, there's legitimate fear there. Um, but there's also the sense of betrayal when people share these stories too yeah. of going, I know I'm not supposed to think about this thing that is so good uh, and this thing that everyone says, wow, you're a part of that. That's so wonderful and amazing. Mm. And when your experience is it's not, then that's, uh, then, then, then that's incredibly confusing. But along with that, because of the way we use hurt um, and, the, and the language of hurt, people share these things and try and minimise it as they go because they don't want you to jump the table and go, 
oh, well, <laughs> this that's not really that bad, is it? Or surely that just sounds like a mistake or, you know, what are you getting all upset about? Yeah. When one of the reasons we use the word hurt is because if it's found out to be true that we've been hurt, the person that hurt you is a hurter. If we use the word abuse, then the person who did this to you is an abuser. And the people who hold power in these organizations can't be abusers, can they? Mm. Well, the answer is yes, they can. But we are so used to protecting and not speaking against. I mean, I think one of the greatest things that fuels this is, is a sense of an honor culture where honor, I mean, of we have both sat in <laughs> sermons oh, where God. people have said, you know, if you, even if you found, I've heard a uh, prominent, I'm in Melbourne now, a prominent Melbourne pastor when I was back in New Zealand say, even if you know, even if you, if you, even if you catch your pastor doing something sinful, you don't tell anyone, you pray about it because that is not your domain. I mean, if that person isn't abusing people, then I'll be very, very surprised yeah. if you can come out with that. But the idea that, um, that, you know, critique shouldn't go up the hierarchies, it should only go down. Mm. The idea that uh, that essentially all behaviours are legitimised by people's positions. Uh, the idea that, uh, idea even, I mean, I saw this quoted this week in a, I think it might have, may have even been a press statement <laughs> about how, you know, we, you know, we, we, we praise publicly and, you know, and address things privately. Uh, that don't acknowledge the power dynamics of the fact that, you know, you can praise publicly, uh, but when you are sat in a room with a very, very scary and powerful person who you have seen um, yell at people, uh, coerce people, marginalise people, fire people, sideline people, um, send the attack dogs on, and you sit and you want to raise the specific, specific issue that you have, not only are you not allowed to call their behavior abusive because you just carry a hurt, but also the power, power dynamics mean that you, um, the, the chances of you feeling comfortable enough to actually, or confident that you're going to get, they're going to be believed or get an, a response are incredibly minimal. Yeah. So, you know, um, all of this kind of speaks to why these stories all sit under the surface so that, yeah, so that by the time you sit across the table with someone, in an entirely different context, they're still terrified of sharing that story. Mm. Um, and, and you know, there's all the relational implications of what it will mean for, essentially, often in these spaces, that the, the, the church world becomes your entire world. I think megachurches mm. are kind of designed to do that. They become yeah. your whole world, which means all of your relationships and friendships and are, are, yeah. are meshed in there. Mm. So to to speak yeah, out And about, also your fidelity, they're set against each other. And yes. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Your fidelity is first and foremost to the church yeah. and then everything else. Um, that you're slowly distanced from your family. Like, yeah. you know, all those stories coming out of, you know, I was told, you know, our family weren't believers or they weren't part of the church or they didn't understand mm. that, you know, what they really should be doing is listening to the inside authority. Yeah, and, and I think, again, from the outside or for people who haven't had this kind of experience, maybe it's hard to hard to understand or hard to make sense of why you would tolerate. Yeah. Now, I remember recounting stories of some, of, you know, to, to a friend of mine about some things that have been said and done to me. And they were like, where was your sense of like, just, why didn't you just, where was your dignity? Why didn't you just stand up and say, you can't talk to me like that? 
Um, I heard about dignity over years ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dignity? I don't have any dignity. Um, <laughs> my dignity is is uh, is committed to the cause. Um, it left me. Uh, you know, like the, the sort of, it's almost unbelievable that someone would tolerate that level of coercion and manipulation and, and abuse. Mm. And yet when you're inside those those spaces, that's that's very much what happens. And it's all that it's so much of it is subtle. Occasionally it's it's full frontal assault, yes. as in you know, yeah. something shocking or yeah. or whatever. But usually those tactics aren't used um, mm. because they're not the most effective and mm. they're more We can only use them so often. And you can only use them so often. So it's often it's all it's the it's the death by a thousand cuts that yeah. just wear away at you over time. I remember um there was a real emphasis in our church on, <laughs> well, I think there had been people trying to raise issues and so they wanted to develop a real open um, culture where we could have ability to question the the leadership. And this was on staff. And so they said, so we're going to have just a free Q&A time. Ask us anything you like, absolutely anything. Open book. We want to be able to be share and be honest with you. Um, so... Let's have a question time. Just remember before you ask your questions that your question locates your heart, um, <laughs> which essentially means um, what kind of question you ask will tell us a lot about what's actually going on for you and what kind of person you are and whether you're up to it or not. Mm. And and so, you know, <laughs> this very open kind of question time suddenly <laughs> became people going, um, my question is how can how can we be even more excellent um, well, my question is, what, what, what more should I do? Should I take on more? <laughs> <You know? laughs> because everyone, everyone suddenly was made uh, very aware that the kinds of question that they asked was going to determine how they were seen. And so it's, it's like a little thing in the moment, and yet it's, a very, it's just another layer of very powerful tools that essentially manage dissent, right? Manage yeah. people's concerns and make sure they stay buried. Uh, my, you can't see because I, I'm on Zoom, but uh, for you podcast listeners, Michael uh, is waving his arms around a lot at the moment, which is, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is exactly how I feel about it because of this idea of cross pressures, that it doesn't actually just take one strong thing to uh, suppress dissent and critique. Uh, one strong thing will never work. Mm. It's too obvious and can be too easily broken and different personalities will respond to it differently and will have great power over some and not over other others. Um, uh, that, that, that little bell sound is just Rory the cat coming for a visit. Oh, He's hey, so Rory. passionate about this. <laughs> um, he thought I needed help with all the arm waving. Uh, but, but this idea of cross pressures of that, that there's multi-pronged strategies and some of them are kind and some of them are really, really nasty and we all know all of them exist. So some of them are ideas like you want to be, you want to remain an insider. You want to stay, sorry, I'm just going to move Rory out. <laughs> One moment. <laughs> Come on, Rory. Can't you see we're having a serious conversation? Yeah, so... So, you know, it, it might be that, you know, you want to remain an insider and you want to, you know, ask some questions, but you don't want to look, you don't want to actually, you know, tear anyone down. And so because of that, you suppress dissent. You, it might be that you know that you don't want to become one of those people because yeah. there's a fortress mentality around a lot of these institutions of this us and them. There are the people who are jealous of us, who 
don't like what we're doing because they don't understand or because we're in their territory and they don't like it or, you know, there are people out there in the world and they don't understand what the powerful move of God that's happening. Um, and so you want to stay one of them. And we all know how people are talked about who have become one of them. You know, they yes. fell away or they, they their heart get bitter or they allow themselves to be hurt and so they miss out on all of this good stuff. And then there's, you know, more um, insidious background things like in some of these stories that come out this week where people know that they will be cut off from community completely, that people will be warned against them, that they um, will, that people will harass harass them and send them text messages and, and horrible phone calls, that all of these things together, mm. um, some of it carrot and some of it stick, um, and often with insidious spiritual authority, this idea that, you know, this is the blessed man of God and, you know, don't speak against them, otherwise bears will come out of the woods and eat you like with whoever it was. Um, <laughs> okay, that's, so for those people who are like, that's a random reference. <laughs> Um, I just, just clarify that there is a story in the Old Testament about a prophet who uh, gets mocked by these young. It's it's one of the sort of weirdest stories in the Bible, and there are a few. Um, he gets getting mocked by these young people, and they call him Baldy Baldy. I believe that's the uh, thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so a bear comes out of the woods and and mauls them all. <laughs> anyway. Okay. He is sent by God, we can only assume. Of course. And that's another example of why you shouldn't say anything to the Lord's anointed one. Don't touch God's anointed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Shane. I was just uh, just translating (laughs) that for people who might not have the bear story. (laughs) Appreciate that. Uh, Yeah. So so some of it's carrot and some of it's stick. Some of it's there will be repercussions um, and some of them are kind of, you know, different forms of violence and some of them are just lost opportunity. And so you really need to go all in. I think Frosty and I have had this conversation recently about how uh, how many people we know who just implicitly know it's easier to move city than to leave a church. Yeah. And so if you want to avoid, if you want to leave the church because you've finally had enough and you can't witness it any longer or you've been so brutalized or whatever it is, it's much e- much easier than saying, you know, I don't like some of these things and I'm going to go somewhere else or do something different. Uh, it's actually easier to say, I got a job in a different city yeah. and to actually physically move yeah. uh, because it's a, a lot less hassle. Many uh, people do this. Yes, Many people yes. do this. In fact, go through your Rolodex <laughs> <laughs> and see who's moved in the last And <laughs> 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 You might know some of them. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Um... It's it's quite extraordinary that that you know, and I think, um, obviously, you know, a lot of these churches rely a lot on young people. I think, mm. um, perhaps because young people are have lots of those things we were talking about earlier: um, energy, mm. um, loyalty, mm. and uh, more easily led, perhaps yep. eager to please, eager to please. Um, they're more easily manipulated, I think, or coerced or controlled by some of this stuff. But, but funnily enough, actually, as you you know, these these things also have an impact on on growing adults too. Mm-hmm. This is not something that only affects kind of your vulnerable seventeen year old person. Yeah. Um, and it's I think you know the dynamics of power, which we've talked about lately on the podcast, 
um, you know, uh, uh, all through society in all sorts of different spheres. And, and what we see is that power, even though in, on one level it's sort of constructed, it's kind of not real on one level mm. in the sense that very seldom is that person going to kill you or violently assault you, right? It's not usually the way power is used. Um, but that power is very real nonetheless. And, and so you can find yourself as a, as a grown person um, mm. cowering under and suffering under the, the, the abuse of people with power above you who kind of, who it feels like hold your life in their hands. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the, the power of a large group of people um, mm. all mm. under the system. So I actually, when I moved to Melbourne, I decided to get out of church for a long, long time. Um, and part of the, part of why was because I felt so institutionalised. I felt like my entire world was church. I didn't really understand the world outside of it. This can't be healthy, can it? <laughs> uh, and I was correct. It wasn't very healthy because you lose perspective when mm. all you have is, is this one thing. But maybe that's the interesting thing about some of the stuff coming out of the general public going like, what the heck are they t- How can anyone believe this? This is straight up outright manipulation. You can't talk about money like this. How can people believe these things and going like, oh, I understand how people can believe, believe these things because I've been inside it. And I also hold the other perspective of going, how did I ever believe those things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I actually entered into the world of HOSPO, which in Melbourne has its own kind of little power dynamics and, and uh, street cred and all of those things and ended up in a very dysfunctional company company with a very abusive owner who ran things in a very, very similar way to a megachurch pastor mm. who had a public face which was really kind and lovely but would walk into the store uh, when uh, not many customers were around and just start yelling randomly at people. So your direct manager above you would start yelling randomly at people and then there would be this uh, environment of coercion and fear where we had to um, you know, we weren't allowed to go to the toilet when we needed to until someone got a kidney infection. <laughs> and the doctor said, you need to tell your boss you have to go to the toilet more often. Mm. Uh, but these dynamics uh, play out in all kinds mm. of organisations. And often it's the fact that you are immersed in an environment where everyone else is going along with it that makes it so difficult to actually yeah. recognise and break it. Yeah. Uh, and particularly when there's spiritual authority stuff of going, this is, we're serving God's person doing God's thing. Yes. And surely this person can't be bad. Now, categorically, you and I, Michael, have been in enough uh, green rooms and backstages and things like this to know that there are some truly terrible humans um, who are beloved <laughs> by the communities that worship them, and they are categorically bad people mm. who do bad things. Um, and it's until you see it from the outside, it's almost impossible to believe that mm. could be true. Mm. Is this going to get your podcast in trouble? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. Okay. Not unless not unless the person you're talking about is me, <laughs> in which case. Actually, this is an intervention. <laughs> in the shift has got too big. <laughs> 50 followers. Oh, come on. It's at least 52. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, we're sort of, as human beings, we're such curious creatures in, in that sense. You know, we yeah. are, um, for all of our kind of modern 
belief that we are these rational, rational, uh, logical, intelligent creatures who do everything on purpose with like real intent um, and make rational, weighted decisions about everything that we do. Um, actually, we're we're driven by these pretty primal impulses, and and um, we all have this desire to belong. We have a desire to matter. We have a desire to fit in and to and to um, not be shunned. Yeah. Um, and then some of us have experiences of life where they leave gaping holes in us as well. You know, whether it's we weren't popular at school or our parents were this or our you know, uncle did that or, you know, whatever those things that happen to us that kind of tear chunks out of us and, and leave us vul- even more vulnerable. Mm. These spaces that become so compelling, um, you know, it, it's, it's, they're incredibly potent. So mm. the attachment in them becomes incredibly uh, potent and it, and it goes very deep. And so it's not just, you know, so like in your story in, in hospital, I think one of the challenges in the church space is that you take that story and then you layer on. So you take that kind of, terrible behavior. And then you layer on, as you say, not only is this like the behavior that's going on, this is what God wants. And this is God's usually man for the, for the time and for the hour. And so by serving this man, you're not just serving him, you're serving God. Um, which means God's going to be very disappointed in you if you let the team down. Um, And so those layers are part of why spiritual trauma takes on a particular kind of shape, I think. Spiritual abuse takes on a particular kind of shape that that has a kind of potency because for us, our faith, our spirituality is often the thing that is one of the, if not the most important thing to us. It's our spirituality, our faith um, is often the thing that reaches right into the depths of our of our heart. And so it's when... It's in tandem with our community yeah. and our relationships and our circles yeah. of care. Yeah. Because all of these things are, you know, neutral, but they are they can have an immense capacity for good. Our 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 bodies and our emotions seek out places of care. They yeah. seek out um, they seek out good forms of authority in the sense of people that you know will be able to you know help share wisdom with us mm. or make safe places mm. for us mm. or teach us things. Like all of these things are good impulses. Yes, but with a dark shadow side. Yeah, and can get taken advantage of. And so um, very much we do need to find places of belonging and care, places where we can trust and communities where we matter. Um, but those, those, those things can be, um, can be twisted mm. and the shadow side becomes very painful. Mm. Um, you know, obviously we're talking about this. About the survivor's bias just while we're... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Just, just really briefly, but there's this, this idea and, um, of survivor's bias, which is where uh, you ask and people within an organisation what their experience of something is and they will, they will tell you. Uh, but survivor's bias basically means that it's the people who have manageable experiences of something that will stay involved in it. And so it's all the people who are receiving particular benefits or are particularly invested in something that will, be able, that will um, still be there to be asked, how is this working out for you? Aren't we all having a good time? Mm. Um, and the people who have been, you know, the cogs in the machine that have been burned out. And this is how a lot of these institutions work. They have a job to do, which requires so many components to do it. And as long as you can replace the cogs as fast as they burn out or faster, um, then the thing can keep on going. And mm. so what's you're casting, you know, you're leaving a, a trail of bodies, um, 
that none of those bodies are there for the internal review of saying, so isn't everything going well? Yeah. <laughs> and somewhere 50 miles in the background, there's someone with a sword on their side going, uh, actually, it didn't work out that great. Yeah. They're an unbeliever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, isn't, isn't this fantastic? Mm. Uh, and so that is also a really compelling um, force within organizations that it's only the people who it's working out for uh, that are left to say, to evaluate how it's going. Yeah. Or whether this is a good system. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that connects for me to the idea that kind of the, the anecdote becomes the rule as well, or like so, so the the intern who actually survived and made it and became a big shot, yeah, becomes the example now, yeah. Um, because look, they did it. Mm. Uh, it's kind of it's like an aversion of the American dream. Um, mm. Look at that one person who did it. Therefore, it's possible for all of us. Therefore, um, stop complaining because that person didn't complain, and look where it got them. Yeah. Well, that person stuck it out, you know. Yeah. Um, yes. So I suppose perhaps the last thing for this part of our conversation, um, and I think because there's more to talk about, lots more to talk about, mm -hmm. but I think um, one of the interesting things for me has been reflecting on how, you know, almost returning full circle back to this, there's no such thing as a perfect, church idea. Um, I don't think anyone's actually expecting that. I don't think anyone's sitting down going, we want all of these organizations to be perfect. Mm. Um, but... We want all these organizations not to abuse people. Yeah, we want them to not to abuse people. That's right. <laughs> Maybe and, that could be a good minimum bar. <laughs> and... and and then it's it's and, and it's not just and, and you see this in, in in fact you see this in, in the the current two big things that are going on in kind of our world of megas, which is the Hillsong and the Arise, um, is is it's not just the thing; it's the response to the thing. So it's not just that this thing happens, mm. um, which is kind of bad in the first instance. Let's say a a staff member does something. To a to a volunteer, or that's that, or coerces them, or manipulates them, or you know, something something takes place. It's then the response of the institution, kind of like what we've been talking about, this kind of managing of dissent, that that adds the layers of trauma to the initial kind of experience. Yes. Um, and so, whether that's the whether that's the woman who comes forward with a story about a pastor who you know um, maybe abused or harassed, mm. um, you've got that initial kind of trauma, but then you've got the layers of trauma as, as the church essentially manages the situation yeah. um, with their PR firms and their, you know, all the kind of stuff. I mean, um, should we talk a little specifically about two ways in which it's been yeah. done? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, so uh, I won't, you know, go through detailed accounts because you can find all these things online, but one is essentially to say mistakes were made, but medication was involved. Yeah. Uh, as if the blame should really be on the medication mm. and the harm done was so obscure, you can't really tell how serious it was mm. or, if, you know, whether it was even serious or, or at all or just someone, you know, being a bit sensitive. Um, but no real accountability. You know, we're acknowledging something bad happened, but really we know it's not that bad because it wasn't that person's fault um, because they were on some medication. Mm. 
Um, so that's, you know, so that's one, again, one way of diminishing responsibility and diminishing harm by obscuring what happened and then obscuring responsibility mm. by saying, you know, we're acknowledging something bad went wrong, but, you know, it wasn't really anyone's fault. It's kind of a victimless crime or a, you know, criminalless crime uh, because the person wasn't in control because of these reasons, which is offensive and weak. Mm. Uh, and then the other situation, there's this thing that um, could be called ring fencing, which is essentially to take broad, broad spread systemic uh, harm that is being done and then isolate it to one particular department, zoom in on that and say, we acknowledge that something or some things have happened in this particular place, which we feel so terrible about, and we will get to the bottom of what happened. Um, and <laughs> we will find that what happened was there were a few bad apples doing bad things in an otherwise very good organisation. Yeah. And we felt terrible about the fact that we didn't see it and intervene and take responsibility for it. And we had really no idea, but we admit we are wrong. It was our job to see it. We should have seen it and stopped it. Um, but unfortunately, these bad apples have done these bad things or this bad department has done this bad thing. And all the focus goes on there. Now, what's actually happening is you're taking an organisation-wide culture which is perpetuated by bullies, by people who have behaved in particular ways, who have legitimised particular forms of leadership, who have modelled that form of leadership, who know exactly and everyone in the institution has seen it, even if they can't admit that that is what is happening, across the whole organisation. And you're saying, look, look over there, a, a bad thing. Uh, for which you can apologise because you will not face the fact that the leadership structure is is, is based on coercion and yeah. on coercive people and people that are not fit to lead. Yes. Like um, you don't – and this is the, the systems and the people type conversation again, mm. which is that you – you don't want to acknowledge that it's a systemic organisation-wide issue and that, in fact, your organisation relies on this level of coercion and bullying to function mm. in the way that it does. Like, it it can't operate the way that it does without it. Mm. And no and, one wants to acknowledge that. Right? Just to take one step further, yeah. uh, it is connected to an entire ecosystem of systems, uh, mm. of other churches and other organisations yep. that write on exactly the same platforms, exactly the same stories that will be told yes. across all of them because we know we've heard enough stories from people from different organisations saying, that's exactly like what happened to me. In fact, there's a race to the bottom in the comments threads of some of these discussions saying, you think that's bad? <laughs> you should check out this church here. No, yes. this one's way worse. I did this one here. And it's not just, again, even within these churches, it's not just, a bad individual in yeah. an otherwise good system. It's actually an entire system of people acting in completely inappropriate ways because the system itself relies on that to be able to function. Yeah, and the amazing thing about that is that then those networks of those systems Literally. reinforce to you as some, you know, punter or volunteer mm. or staff member or whatever role you're playing within that. Well, not only do I look around at the people around me and they're all like, woohoo, great job, the best. 
Um, I also look at, I go to these conferences where all these other people are having are doing the same thing and and look at how my leader is valued and esteemed in all of these other places and all of, you know. And so you're a part of not just this thing, but this global network of, of yeah. movements that keep reinforcing that kind of culture. And so one of the reasons why you want to ring fence and say it's the problem of that department over there and a few bad people or a few people who did some bad things and or shouldn't have been trusted with that much responsibility or something. You, you just want to do that because otherwise you have to actually look in the face and acknowledge the fact that this entire system is set up not just with the collateral damage of abusing people, but I think is set up in a way that it requires the abuse of people in order to keep being what it is. Yeah. And and people don't want to people don't want to confront that. Understandably, perhaps, because they're, they're all their success and life and significance and purpose is comes from that system, but that's ultimately the the the, the core of it, I think. And, and and implicitly, it said we can't change the world if we mm. stop. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, God, God will not be able to move. Yeah, if we if we stop running people over with steamrollers, <laughs> it's just what we have to do. It's the way God moves. <laughs> Uh, and if we stop this, and this is the only good thing that God's doing in the world, because that's one of the other sub-narratives, mm, right? Mm. Going like, you know, we used to be pathetic and now we're great. And look at all those other pathetic. I mean, I think uh, someone we know <laughs> who said <laughs> all churches under, what, 75 need to be shut down because they're, they're wastes of resources. Yes. Um, that That if we go back to that, then God stops doing things in the world. And surely it's not worth that, right? So, yeah, this is, um, we're going to have another conversation. And um, perhaps that's where we'll pick up the convo is is even coming back to some of that stuff you're talking about, about Joshua and Canaan, um, the intersections of this kind of, this is the way God moves, uh, fused with colonization, fused with kind of empire, Fused mm. with um, saving people from eternal damnation, and I yep. mean, at the end of the day, what's a few, what's a few hurt people if we've saved people from eternal suffering and hell? Mm. Um, so there's a bunch of stuff stuff there that maybe we'll we'll pick up on next time, and then see where that conversation takes us, and and, and keep unfolding this. Yeah, can, can I just say one thing to close? Yeah, it, you can. Is that the tone of this conversation, in many ways, is quite jovial because sometimes laughing about something is the only way to, to not cry. Yes. About it. And um, for those who have been victims of these systems, um, for people who have been terribly wounded and hurt and violated, um, and, and that goes for people who were in systems that I, made, that I participated mm. in personally, um, I want you to know that this – isn't actually a joke. Um, and I've cried a lot this week thinking about um, just the trail of destruction and the people's stories that have not yet been heard or believed or witnessed, the people who will not recover, the people who, for whom uh, any kind of faith journey um, isn't a possibility anymore, for whom God and the system that they served were too intertwined, which I totally understand. Um, and even though in this we have kind of lightheartedly discussed some of the stuff because it's so absurd, 
that there's actually nothing funny about it. And, um, and yeah, it, it's, I'm just, I'm really deeply grieved about this, this week. And I don't cry particularly easily, um, because of my own dysfunction, but I've cried a lot this week. Um, and yeah, your stories are worth believing. And, um, and this stuff is, is, is real and serious and should be treated incredibly kindly. Yeah. Indeed. It's a, um, it's a real thing to kind of carry these stories inside you and, you know, as we've talked about plenty, to have been both kind of victims of it and participators in it. And then to, to see and to hear the stories of others and know that we helped build systems like this and then also that that we we now sit kind of trying to find a better way um and yeah sometimes sometimes the stories are so absurd and sometimes the stories are so hard that laughter feels like the um the only way to process but um but yeah i'm glad you said that thank you so there you go that's our chat, at least the first of our chats. And I'll be talking to Shane again in the next few days as we continue to work out this in conversation together. Um, just a reminder again, you can email us at feedback at intheshift.com and we'd love to hear from you, a story, a comment, a question, a concern, whatever you'd like. And thanks as always to Rhys Michel for his audiological massaging of this recording for your ears. Until next time. <laughs>